0: you're listening to the Donor Growth Podcast, forward-looking conversations for those who believe that donor growth is possible. Every week,
1: we'll explore a thought-provoking topic to help build deeper relationships with more of your donors. We are your
0: hosts, Luis Diaz and Mike Dirksen. Now let's get into it. If you were a fundraiser in higher ed, maybe 20 to 30 years ago, the playbook for the annual fund that was simple, you know, you said a couple of letters to your alumni, and maybe once a year, you try to have some sort of reunion, you ask them to volunteer, and that was about it. Is that still working, Lewis? That's what you are going to get into today.
1: Yeah, Mike, thanks for the introduction. That I literally heard from people saying, oh, my days when I ran the annual fund, it was simple. In a way, not to say it was easier, right? So the complications were different. It was much harder to produce things, much harder to manipulate the data. Mm -hmm. So time was being spent on things. It's just that the concept itself was fairly stable and easy to understand. We do a fall appeal, a spring appeal. We have some peer-to-peer calling and that's about it, you know, and you like, like you layer on all the volunteer work. Right. It was very active. And you can succeed, essentially, right? Which kind of made it that lots of people saw that as a kind of a stepping stone to major gifts. That whole situation has changed. So now, yeah, go ahead.
0: Okay, you're saying it's changed. Is it no longer working?
1: I don't think so. I mean, my experience has been that those mail appeals, the way they're being done, most use, you know, most usually following this traditional model, that letter from the president, they're seeing lower and lower returns. Just You see that in the data. As the rest of the nonprofit sector, there are fewer and fewer donors, but you also always had this thing where you thought that higher ed was kind of special in the way, you know, because there was a lifetime relationship with the organization. You're an alum of a place and you're going to be an alum forever. Right. And yet that playbook is not giving the results it used to.
0: Right. You're talking about this implied lifetime relationship, which is like, well, you went to school here. The worth of your degree on your resume kind of depends on this place being here and thriving and, and being a valuable place to go to school. And therefore, um, you you know, there's a bit of an implied, maybe, maybe even slightly obligatory sort of involvement that we're going to expect from you.
1: There's that piece, and I'm sure it's important to some people. There's also the identity piece where you're a grad of X university. That's Mm -hmm. part of your identity, it's on your LinkedIn. You carry that with you your whole life. There was also the network piece. You were with a bunch of people at a pretty important point of your life and you've stayed in touch with them throughout. And they're still your friends, maybe your spouse. There were lots of advantages, kind of what we spoke about in the other chapter about community advantages. Mm -hmm. This was like community advantages on steroids.
0: Right. And that nostalgia advantage too, right? Like some people, like not only the university means a lot to them or the college, like the place means a lot to them. It's like, that's, that's the bench where your mom and I started like dating by hanging out every evening. Right. Or like, yeah,
1: that one, of course, the values advantage, because until recently, higher education was a pretty accepted, legitimized value for everybody. Right. Right. Everybody kind of understood that this was a good thing for society. Now there's all types of opinions, right? As with everything, right? Because now there's all types of opinions on everything. (laughs) I mean, kind of what I want us to talk about today is how, in a way, the higher ed annual fund fundraising model is not so different from the rest of the annual fund, membership, mass fundraising models that exist outside of higher ed and that, in fact, it should adopt many more of those techniques. So that kind of, like, we're unique, we can do things differently, that has gone away. That's right. kind of the thesis today.
0: So so the eds and the meds, the education sort of places and, and the medical healthcare sort of charities, always within the nonprofit sector, they always kind of had their own unique special corner, they had their own sort of playbooks that were a little bit different from the rest of the sector, because they had some of these advantages you talked about. Uh, Your thesis is, hey, that worked 20 to 30 years ago. It may have worked for the last 20 to 30 years, but maybe it's time to reconsider that there might be a new playbook here. And there might be people in the nonprofit sector who are not from higher ed, who are already running this, and maybe we should look at it. Is, Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and
1: you're being very polite when you're saying
0: this might not work.
1: It very obviously is not working. And it's a playbook that was predicated, that assumed that we had a high trust environment. That when people got a letter from us, they were saying, oh, my goodness, you know, it's my university. I better open this. This looks important. But right now it's, oh, it's an appeal. They're after me for money, you know.
0: But it came right from the desk of the president. It says right there on the letter, it came from their desk.
1: Yeah, exactly. But there are other nonprofits that for years have worked in a lower trust environment where they were talking to donors that maybe didn't even know about them beforehand. And they had to really quickly, really inventively, really effectively build trust.
0: Oh, I hear you! I hear you on that. Amazing! All right. Okay, I'm I'm pumped. Let's do this. Where do we start?
1: I mean, one last kind of background piece for those who are listening, who have no idea or maybe interest in higher education or the Anglo-Saxon model of higher education. (laughs) Something else that has happened is that there's a very important ranking in the states that the newspaper or media organization called U.S. News puts out. They used to count alumni giving participation, the percentage of the alum of your alumni who gave back to the school in that ranking, it was always a very small percentage, but it was a very common talking point with alums. So you know give back because that's going to help our ranking, which is going to help the value of your degree, right? Right. So it was, I mean, I don't want to say white lie. It was technically not a white lie, but it was like on the border <laughs> because it was like three percent. But they've dropped that. They've dropped that as a factor. So I I think lots of schools are going to be saying, okay, well then if that's not the metric we look at, what is the new one? And I think this is a great opportunity to just rethink the, just kind of the model. You know, it's a playbook. It's a number of strategies you use. Some strategies help for some things and some strategies help for other things and you want to use the right ones in your situation. And the situation has changed. I mean, that that's it. So We can get started wherever you want. I have like two big categories for this. Yeah,
0: you've got one just kind of like building the pipeline for for major gifts by retaining more donors and upgrading them over time. And the second category is donor interest renewal, which is just kind of thinking of your existing alumni base as kind of like fishing in your backyard, in your back pond, whatever you want to call it. It's like, (laughs) think of that list as as reacquiring, treating them a little bit like cold acquisition. The thing you talked about, like gain trust really fast rather That's than it. assume assume that they're already insiders and just expect them to give. So let's start with yeah. the first category, donor retention, major gifts pipeline. Yeah. And you are starting the playbook here with a donor welcome series.
1: So yeah. So it, essentially today, Mike, what I'd like us to go through is kind of a playbook, which is a collection of tactics Mm-hmm. And I think your perspective will be super informative because we're kind of bridging our two worlds here today. A donor welcome series is a series of automated, semi-automated, or semi-automated messages that go out to somebody after they make their gift. There's a ton of research of how doing it and doing it well, improve retention rates, size of second gift, likelihood of second gift. There's about, 10 to 12 things you can do in these emails. It's kind of a standard model. It's just never done in ed. So I think that's one easy win.
0: Right. So this is when somebody makes their first gift, just for people who are not familiar, somebody makes their first gift, get gift, gets entered into the CRM that triggers an automatic or semi-automatic series of emails that gets dripped out to them for the next four to six weeks. Nice. That's kind of this journey that they follow. It does a whole bunch of things. You know, kind of every email in that sequence has a job to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this, this is a really great tactic to start because it almost runs itself once you've got it set up, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, and you tell us, where you use it with the organizations that you work with, right? And what, you know, what, what the benefits are. I kind of see what the blockers are to do this in higher ed. They're mostly technical. I don't think this is one of those like conceptual things where people would not want to do it. I think they want to do it. It's just the uh, technology slash, you know, people's less, process, less, technology problem.
0: Right. Yeah. We use two different kinds. One is a new subscriber welcome series and one is a new donor welcome series. Just because in our world, a lot of the time you're not getting a gift first. The first gift somebody gives you is their email address or their attention, which is kind of the same thing these days. So there's a there's just a new subscriber welcome series. And that, again, is four to six weeks. We we should do an episode sometime where you and I compare our our welcome series strategies, but it's it ends that series ends in a financial ask at the very end. You've earned the right to to ask that way. If somebody makes a first gift either off that series or just a cold gift or off an event, whatever they get the new donor welcome series, okay. and that series is very much about very quickly developing a sense of belonging and identity, and you're an important part of the team and that series for us it often ends in monthly giving for organizations who are fairly monthly giving forward but you've got to do uh you've got to do something emotionally valuable for the donor before you can make that second ask on that second gift so there's actually lots of opportunities for reply backs within those within that series both to improve future email deliverability but also just to show donors that you're listening but again, that's a whole podcast you and I should exactly. at some point. But, exactly.
1: Yeah. So huge tool is well-established with proven results that, of course, if you think that people already trust you, you wouldn't default to it. But people yeah, don't trust it anymore. Right. And so you have to do more of that. You mentioned a new subscriber welcome series. And I think this falls into our second pocket where we're kind of going to look at that huge pool that every university has of alums are not engaged you haven't heard from and that essentially you have to reacquire reactivate um Mm -hmm. renew their interest so that could be a strategy there in in that bucket
0: your next Um, tactic is a gift renewal series what is a gift renewal series
1: kind of the same thing but just on the other end of of you know the, the annual cycle of making a gift lots of people think of their gifts in an annual cycle oh i give to this charity in february especially your best and most loyal donors. Many of them um, have a schedule, internalized schedule, right? Give every December. That's how it works. So it helps you to remind them. But again, if you just show up out of thin air and say, hey, it's giving time, (laughs) you you gave last February and that's all there is to it, not as effective. And so if you have a series over time that maybe starts with, again, re engage we're talking about like a lot of re getting people back. If you start with re-engaging, surveying, so fairly far out from that date that you think is going to come, you have a better chance.
0: Yep. That makes a, a lot of sense. I'm not as used to the annual cycle that you talk about. I, I think that might be very higher ed related as well. I know that the annual giving campaign that works in so well in higher ed doesn't work outside of higher ed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So there, there must be something there um, that is that is unique to higher ed, this annual giving cycle. Major gift prospect nurturing. I've got stuff we're working on here, but I want to hear what you mean by this. No,
1: of course. And a lot of this is influenced by the Build Good Summit, Mike. Some great presentations there. Mike hasn't announced the date for next year, but I recommend that everybody check it out as soon as, as it's out. But essentially... There used to be that model of the annual fund that lived in its own little bucket. It had its own budget, its own goals. And lots of people paid lip service to, oh, the annual fund is where like we're developing major donors. But that was never really part of the strategy at all. If anything, they were, if you had two departments, if you're big enough to have two departments, they were against each other because when the major gift people took people out of the annual giving pool that hurt them. It hurt their results. So then there was all this fighting. This Dude, is a knowledge. Yeah.
0: Last week, you and I were in a meeting. You pulled me into this meeting to, to do something specific around the acquisition. And did you remember this? You and I were totally. in a meeting it was and not- I'm going to keep this very anonymized. The group we were meeting with, we were talking about some data and they said, well, we need to acquire this many donors every year. And we asked why it's like, Oh, because this many donors upgrade to major like mid and major every year. So we lose them.
1: (laughs) And Mike, very politely tried to say what we were all thinking was like, well, isn't this like the best possible thing for your organization as a whole. And it it was interesting to see that silo mentality Uh deeply embedded because This was just how people intuitively thought about it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you there. Uh, Oh, no, no,
1: no. Great chat. So anyhow, this is to acknowledge that there has to be proactive major gift prospect nurturing. What doesn't count as pipeline development is having a prospect researcher say, okay, you know, these are 500 people that now have to go into a major gift pipeline. Those are not necessarily ready for outreach from a gift officer. I mean, that's just kind of the reality. Mm -hmm. The entire sales world has already seen that. And they've developed a new role called an SDR, a sales development representative, who essentially is doing this task, the, the prospect nurturing. They're identifying people. They're trying to get on a call with them. They're qualifying them, what we would call qualifying them in the moves management model. Yeah, And then they're handing them off. And this has to be much more intentional and a part of the playbook.
0: Yeah. And not only do they have SDRs, they also have something called ABM, which is like account-based marketing, which is like they identify their 500 dream customers. And they start running ad spend just against those 500 customers. Sometimes for years, so that when SDRs and when other people from the company reach out, those accounts in the sales world are aware of who you are, what you do, what the problem is you solve. Sometimes those ads are even helping them realize their own pain points and their own problems. But they they nurture, the sales world has figured out how to nurture people before you ask for the sale for a long time.
1: Yeah. So it's essentially a very similar concept. And yeah, you just have to have a, a, a playbook for that. Lots yeah. of so it used, I mean, kind of old world versus new world. It used to be that you identified these people; they've been giving mm-hmm. to the annual fund for years. Your the states, you know, we have no privacy here, so you had great data on these people, and you know about all about their wealth. And then you said, mm-hmm. "Hey, this this group of people should get get into a portfolio." And then major gift officers would call them and say, "Hey, mm, it's John here." And people would say, "John, come to my wedding. It's my birthday tomorrow. <laughs> You're invited." That is absolutely not the case. Gift officers are burnt out and frustrated because they're getting these leads that are actually not leads or haven't been nurtured. So we, again, not a matter of good or bad, just we need a different playbook for this.
0: You know, when I sent you that microphone, I asked for your home address and you gave Mm -hmm. it to me. That was just like a, a complicated ruse for me to get your, look up your mortgage information, which is surprisingly public and i disqualified you from asking for a major gift i'm sorry
1: yeah i know and i know um, you also did the google map thing where you see how big of a car i have parked in front of the house (laughs) and you saw my broken down van you uh were much nicer to me after that i have to say
0: (laughs) (laughs) i didn't do any of that but i might after this call you've got me i'm intrigued now
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right so more, more more playbook tactics
0: Yeah. Stewardship video messages for current donors. Love this. Tell me more about it.
1: Okay. This combines a number of situations. Number one, the traditional newsletter with which lots of nonprofits outside of higher ed keep their donors informed and connected in an effective way. Super hard to produce in a higher ed context. You have too many stakeholders and the editing process and approval process is just impossible. I've never seen one of these come out on time. I mean, literally like never. And if they, one of them came out on time, it wasn't consistent. And a lot of what we talk about, Mike, in this podcast is how consistency builds that habit and that feeling of community.
0: Yeah. And and, trust. Yeah. And
1: trust. Exactly. They know you're going to be there when you said you would. Uh, Lots of in addition to that, the default thinking for lots of higher ed institutions is that it has to be this amazing, glossy magazine that's going to get prizes, which makes it even harder and more expensive to do. So I've experimented and I've you know seen research and I've talked about tactics with you. Just a monthly update from a human, mm-hmm. tremendously effective. If it's a video update, I would say even more effective. In some ways, and it doesn't have to be consistent, right? You don't always have to have a video, but I just want to say that video is a tool that builds trust quicker. So anyhow, this is a little bit of a hack. Honestly, it's saying, look, instead of spending months producing a magazine to stay in touch with people that's going to arrive late or never, where your messaging is not going to get in, you actually have the power to pick up your camera right now, maybe buy a tripod at Best Buy. And record a short and sweet message or to jump yeah. on a Zoom with a faculty member that people love and do a five minute interview and yeah. send it out to your donors. A lot of the time, the number of donors that lots of units have is very manageable for even like a desktop mail merge, you know, email, email, you know. Yeah. So we we limit ourselves mentally a, a whole lot here. So this is kind of a like, you know, break the box.
0: Yeah. And if anybody's more interested in that kind of tactic, specifically donor growth episode eight, we talked about five ways of raising more money between asks and the quarterly town hall was one of them. So if the monthly video seems like a lot, the quarterly town hall, which you are also included here, Lewis, we talk about that in more detail on how to pull that off. And Lewis, I don't know about your experience. I have nothing against all the software companies that help you send out branded videos, you know, I'm not going
1: to name You're not names. part of the nonprofit industrial complex, Mike. Just say it. You know, you're going you're gonna to help nonprofits where they are and in the ways that they need you.
0: Yeah, it's okay to pull out your iPhone and to shoot a video and send it off to donors. And in many cases, it is more effective. You know, looks uh, better.
1: Yeah, looks more may,
0: authentic. You I may mean- not need that subscription to that service. I don't want to walk you off the ledge, maybe it's a good idea. But I've just seen iPhone videos sent to donors be super effective without paying thousands of dollars to a subscription. Yeah,
1: I have this new theory I'm developing. It's under wraps, Mike, world premiere here, which is that a lot of fundraising success at this level, you know, at this kind of communications level, even at the one-on-one level, is depends not so much on the content not so much on the form how you do things but on passing the sniff test i think that's the most important test does it feel authentic and people's sniff tests are very sophisticated nowadays so like they'll whiff it out they'll whiff that marketing speak very quickly and the truth is if you record yourself on an iphone and we're not sponsored
0: yet we're not we're not sponsored by iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. Apple Apple, yeah. Apple is just like waiting to sponsor the Donor Growth podcast. They need, they Wait, need we'll get
1: there. We'll they get, need hey, the we're brand 5,000 subscribers. Can you believe this? Five th- almost five thousand subscribers. And we started this with like Mike harassing Lewis at his home trying to send him a microphone. I mean it's just totally crazy. <laughs> But anyhow, monthly, uh, authentic, sniff this. Yeah. This is a technique. It works. More examples. If you're a sports fan sometimes and you get a season ticket, this is a tactic that some teams use very effectively. They actually like give you a person that's sending you obviously blasts, but they come from them. They're all text. And they're kind of in touch with you throughout the season. And they'll send you offers from time to time.
0: Yep. Yeah, you're in somebody's portfolio, right? Like you get assigned a person. That person may have thousands of people in their portfolio, so to speak. But they're, you know, that's my guy. That's my girl over there, whatever. That's you've got the person assigned to you.
1: I mean, you got Anthony at Charity Water.
0: I got Anthony at Charity Water, yeah.
1: (laughs) So anyhow, this thing works. It should be part of the playbook. Um, It's actually counterintuitively a little bit easier than the traditional things that we think about.
0: Yeah. Okay. Next tactic. Thank you postcard at Thanksgiving or maybe other times of the year. Just like basically surprise and delight throughout the year. that are not asks.
1: Yeah. Lots of schools already do this. So this is necessarily not a super new thing. Just to put it on here because what I find a lot lots of times is that people don't realize that this is a fundraising tactic. That it increases fundraising results at the when you actually do ask for a gift at the end of the year. Hmm. Proven in studies. It's. This disconnect that happens sometimes in, especially in in higher education shops where that was the president's office that should have done it and they didn't do it. But then, you know, the poor annual fund or the Ford development department, it doesn't maybe even realize that that was going to help them in year end.
0: So, yeah, dude, I had a lunch meeting yesterday with a major gift officer and the person running annual gift. Mm-hmm. And he got a 306000 He had just gotten a $306,000 gift for a project. Mm-hmm. And the lady was asking him, oh, how did that happen? Whatever. He's like, well, if, well, he made a comment about that gift has to be designated to this project in Honduras. And she asked, oh, why does it have to be for that specific project? And he said, "Yeah, well, the church, his church has been supporting that specific project for 10 years already. And they're like, oh, that's amazing. Good job, right? And yeah, good job to him. And in my head, I'm like, that guy just got attribution for that gift, and the church engagement team did not. And they've been doing that for 10 years. And some guy sells his company. His church has been, you know, doing stuff for 10 years, and now it goes in the major gifts portfolio, which is great. But like we talk a lot about the errors of attribution here. Podcast oh. number 12 of the Donor Podcast. How do you podcast- remember this?
1: Okay, I have to sorry, Mike. I the other time with the chapter eight, are our episodes really in your head, or do you have a list up?
0: No, I've got a list, man. I'm prepared.
1: Dude, you're amazing. Like, that's (laughs) savant level of accuracy.
0: The the postcard is one of those. Can you attribute results back to it? No. Does it help? Yes. You just have to be okay with not knowing exactly how much it helps. Yeah. Like a lot of these tactics, right? You just got to, they all work together.
1: I mean, and they're having people who A-B tested them with pretty large groups and published their results. Um, You know, uh, at some level...
0: Me- Meals yeah, I mean, on Wheels has a case study on Giving Tuesday using a postcard. So that's that's one people can look. Yeah, up. Yep. yeah, I mean,
1: yeah, I see it all the time. So that type of thing, just be a good human. Do the nice things. Don't cut the nice things when you want to save money because you're going to lose There's even more money. It's horrible.
0: Yeah, That's a good that's good. You And you're not going to save your way to success.
1: Oh, my tax. Makes, that's a really good one.
0: Tax statement appeal. Tax statement. Okay. I I don't know what this is. You got to tell me what a tax statement appeal is because it sounds very sexy. Give me that tax statement appeal.
1: It's the most anti sexy thing that you could do, but it's a great donor service. People, you send this out January, February with a list of people's gifts last year, Mm -hmm. uh, and you include an opportunity to make this year's gift in it it, it always performs very well. You know, obviously these people are your loyal donors. They were going to give no matter what, but a lot of the time, like we've said here, the enemy of giving is not, I won't give is not right now. So it's that, okay, I'll leave it for later. And this helps because people have it, they, you know, they have it on their desk to give to their accountant for a good two or three months. And they have, if you've put a reply card in there, you'll get gifts from it. When I've done it, a lot of the times it was the best performing appeal that we did in the year. So just on a like attribution level.
0: Okay, so just along with the summary of gifts that you're gonna send out toward the end of the year, toward in the new year for the for the previous fiscal year, just also include an appeal in there, or just a reply slip, or what does that
1: reply slip? I've I've done I I, I've typically done you know if you'd like to make your twenty so for next year it's gonna be your twenty twenty four gift at this time kindly find enclosed. A gift reply card, that's about it. You know, Everything else is about the service you're providing and what types of gifts are included and thanking people for their support. People don't do this because number one, it's a technical thing, super hard for most shops to pull this off, mind boggling, right? How can it be so hard to just print out a list of gifts for each of your donors from last fiscal year? I would say in my experience, like one out of four has been able to, to do it. Or it has been like a year-long effort to get this done. And then number two, if they do do it, they, they have a, not having that ask in there is kind of a missed opportunity. That has been my experience.
0: Oh, okay. So I think I misunderstood you here. So you're saying a lot of people aren't even sending a gift summary. Um,
1: Correct. They're not. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gift summary, you know, tax. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what this because is. Because
0: they're issuing tax receipts throughout the year as somebody makes a gift?
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: Okay. And then they don't at the end of the year do one consolidated one. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Most of our, this might be more of a Canadian thing. I know in the US, it is not as tax advantageous anymore to make gifts because you got to, it's got to be above a certain amount. That's true. And so people end up, I don't know anything about I, this. I'm,
1: yeah. Up- oh, if you itemize, you can deduct gifts. But since the level for itemizing has gone up so much, Right no, it's just not worth it
0: okay what what is that what is that level at? Don't ask me, I don't okay, yeah, but it's like in, in the thousands, right, yeah. If I remember right. Okay. Yeah. So in Canada, every gift is what you guys call itemized. Every gift is tax deductible. And now some charities have this rule. We only issue tax receipts for gifts of $20 or more. Most charities issue tax receipts for gifts of any size. So whether you donate $5 or 50,000, that's going to be deductible in your taxes. So Mm -hmm. I think this might be more of a common practice in Canada to send out a consolidated tax receipt, even if you're still issuing throughout the year, but you're saying do it, and include an ask and say, hey, this might be a, might be a good time for you to make your this year's gift already.
1: Okay, it's a good chance to say thank you again. It's a yeah. service for those who do itemize, even if there are fewer of them, but they're also be there they will also be your most high net worth people. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it's a revenue generator. Mm, you know.
0: Yeah, and the nice thing is you get if you do this in January and February, you get a lot of revenue up front. It helps with cash flow issues.
1: Oh, huh, there you go. Right, Not so much of an issue in higher ed, but still a way to keep donors around, <laughs> which is what it's all about.
0: Outside of higher ed, there's cash flow issues, Lewis. You know,
1: <laughs> I'll uh... have to look that one up in the Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Donor interest renewal. So this is your thesis that most alums should be treated as cold audiences and they need to be quote unquote, reacquired. And we can parse, both you and I don't like the word acquired, but we use it because people know what it means. So for that reason, we will keep using it in this podcast.
1: Yeah, great. Great asterisk at the end. Yeah, essentially we have lists, we have names in a database. We think they mean something. The thesis here is that not really. You should think of renewing their interests. At least several times per year or at least in advance of each campaign giving them ways to maybe opt in to send you updated information on themselves mm-hmm. you know to join you for things etc cetera, etc cetera.
0: yeah okay so multiple times throughout the year okay let's clarify one more thing when you and i talk about campaign in this context we're not talking about a year long campaign that sometimes in higher ed, well, oftentimes in higher ed, you know, multi-year, which school, yeah. Yeah, which school isn't in a campaign right now, right? They're always in a multi-year campaign. And once one campaign wraps up, you start thinking about the next one. When we say campaign, we mean in traditional sort of marketing campaign, like, you know, mail, email, phone, whatever, like a coordinated effort for a shorter amount of time to raise some money. Correct.
1: Exactly. Okay. And, you know, that's why it has, it's a horrible name, annual fund, right? It shouldn't be annual, probably shouldn't be a fund either, either, but (laughs) anyhow, it's shorter cycles.
0: Yeah. So shorter cycles, you talk about four campaigns, you know, yeah, contact info update. What's an oral history campaign?
1: Well, this one's, there's actually a firm that does this for people. And this is one of these things where somebody has productized something. And then people think that the only way to do this is through the product. We were talking about that with videos earlier. Mm -hmm. Yep. Huge results, works really well. This company that does it makes a ton of money because they sell stuff on top of it. So you're actually kind of like lending your alumni base to them so that they can upsell them on things. But they also raise gifts on top of that. So it's a campaign where you get in touch with as many alums as you can, and you compile some type of oral history. You can decide on the topic if there's an anniversary of this school. Yep. You can think of what questions you want people to put in there. People love to do this. And the thing is that once they've been reactivated, reacquired, you know, their interest is renewed, then you've earned the right to ask for a gift. And it works much better. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially it. And it, it's, you know, it maybe a little bit more complicated in the sense that you have to publish something at the end. You can do it electronically. Yeah. But it works.
0: Yep. Okay, Day of Giving. This is we've done an episode on Giving Days. You've got me flat footed. I don't know which number, which number it was. It was an early episode. (laughs) I think it was like episode number two or three. It was like one of the early ones.
1: He was on a streak. (laughs) I put this in the hair because I know universities love their Days of Giving. I think it's unlikely that their Days of Giving are going anywhere. I think you can turn this into a Day of Giving Thanks, or just think of it in a little bit a more sophisticated way or not in a more sophisticated way, but in a way that's more about just, this is the day that we ask everybody adding an engagement component before that. But in any case, it's an opportunity to reconnect with everybody. And more importantly, since it already has institutional buy-in, it's an opportunity to get faculty members to get, you know, the registrar's office to give you that list that they'll never give you in a thousand years. But if it's giving day, you know, they kind of have to do it.
0: Yeah. Okay. We need a donor growth giving day as in a day where you give to donor growth because Apple hasn't sponsored us yet. And the mic I send you cost a bunch of money and we need to to recover our losses somehow.
1: And all that driving from Winnipeg, it was brutal. I don't know how you did it. (laughs) You didn't even stop by to say hi.
0: Yeah. All right. I giving day a lot of folks listening may have a state giving day that they participate, or they may giving Tuesday, their giving day, or they may have their own giving day for their own university. And we've talked about how that's also a fantastic day to involve volunteers. It's a fantastic day to renew the interest of the people who you're trying to quote unquote, reacquire. It's a fantastic day to involve major donors, some sort of campaign to connect with donors, typically a survey is is that, is it usually a survey or is there other ways of doing this?
1: Yeah. And I hope people are starting to see the common thread, right? Where you're doing something, where you start out with something, with an initiative that you're kind of earning the right to ask for a gift. Yeah. By showing interest and by being reactive in an authentic, I really care type of way, you know, not in a, I'm doing yep. this now because next week I'm asking you for a gift type of way.
0: Yeah. Donor Growth Pod listeners, hopefully, if you've listened to many of our episodes, you know, we talk about earning, earning the right to ask. It's not yeah, this is not just handed to you. Got to put in a little yeah. bit of work. Yeah.
1: Folks, you have to be careful. If you stick around Mike long enough, like all his little sentences are just going to start to infiltrate your thinking, you know? And then, <laughs> you know, you don't want to go to Ikea. You want to go to that build good furniture place and it's dangerous.
0: What are you talking about? <laughs> build good furniture place? I don't build even know- good.
1: Do you get it? Build
0: good. No.
1: What okay? What? Brain <laughs> like, cancel this episode. Let's get through it. We're almost done.
0: <laughs> All right. Events, episode number fifty-two, fire festival two and the incurable addiction of special events. We just did an episode on events. You're saying, hey, events can really work to reacquire some of your, you know, this cold audience, which is your alumni. Yes. But and you gotta you gotta do it a certain way. Which way do you have to do it? There you go. So you have to first give up people
1: opportunities to make a gift with so many schools like are allergic to it, right? People can't help you if they don't have the opportunity to do so. You can do it in a respectful, non-pushy way, but you still have to do it. So if you have trauma over that, there's, you know, some some trauma that needs to, you know, some issues that need to get resolved there. Number two, it doesn't always have to be what Mike was calling a special event. So it doesn't have to be a replay of the fire Festival. You can do these things virtually. You can, I mean, just, you can be so creative with these things. You can actually do them as a webinar that's replayed, you know, on demand even. And it still feels like an event. You can do them with kind of just about getting together with a moderator. And and that moderator could be a staff member. And that's the value, right? But then you have to give, you know, you have to invite people well. You have to... Give them probably an opportunity to make a gift when they register. Then you have to ask them for their opinion after it. And then maybe when you're conf- thanking them for those thoughts that they shared, you may also give them an opportunity there. So great. You know, great. It's it's a, it's a great tactic. It's just and universities do a lot of events. It's just they need to be they need to realize that it's a reactivation. Yeah. Way. It's a tactic.
0: You had me at on demand webinar with a staff member. That, that's a headline. Well, I, thought, I mean, that, that I, you know,
1: the donor participation project. We're super <laughs> lean. I'll do every trick in the book to try to give people a good experience, but also it's just me. So, what I've yeah. done,
0: and I've, I also know you well enough that if it was an on demand webinar with a staff member, you would rebrand it as something that didn't sound like that at all. It would be like, it's like an exclusive play anywhere at your own leisure, you know, session about the the latest research coming from this groundbreaking university. Um, I mean,
1: there's so much that you can do (laughs) really. Yeah, exactly. You know, learn about the 50 types of birds in your area, you know, from this world renowned professor, but you're laughing, but if you're into birds, which is you know, a yeah. good chunk of people. Number one, you're going to reactivate your current alums. Number two, you're going to find people. This is kind of the holy grail of lots of universities, which is they want people that are like not alums to get interested and to eventually make gifts. Yeah. You're going to find those people if you do this type of thing. So anyhow. Right. I,
0: I am laughing not at the idea. I am laughing at your ability to just come up with a statement like learn about 50 types of birds in this example.
1: We're going to call it the nest coffee time or something. I don't know. Join
0: the nest society. Yeah. All right. Now, from the business point of view, (laughs) let's talk about backend. Backend stuff.
1: Okay. So playbook. Yeah. Like we're talking about tactics. This is some things that like need need to happen in the backend that universities I've seen have struggled tremendously with. It just needs to become more of a priority full stop.
0: Right. All right. QBR, quarterly business review, and dashboard. Just This is just like reviewing results on a sort of rolling quarterly basis?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not rocket science. Most places are doing it already. Just putting it on here because if you're not, it's just kind of hard to know where you're going. I've started to work with the shops and they actually had no idea where they were, what the trend was. Yeah. So this is just the basic, like, just no of the land. It doesn't have to be super complicated. In fact, I think it's better if it's not super comp. It's easy to hide problems if you make things super complicated and you have this huge reams of paper with every segment in the world. It's hard to know what's what if you do yeah. that. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Implement conversion tracking. This is just like actually try to measure some of the results of your activities.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about the errors of attribution, episode number blah. No. He, and Mike was actually like mouthing it.
0: Now you're just nah, now you're just mocking me.
1: Please have the utmost respect first, for the master.
0: First, to build good IKEA furniture, which I didn't, still don't get. And now, <laughs> now you're just mocking our, our own back catalog. It's
1: All going right. to be a meme. You know, IKEA has this thing where it's like the backbreaker, like they, they're really complicated pieces of furniture. They they call them like the the I don't know, there's something it's some Swedish thing, like this the husband backbreaker, something like that. I think there's something in there for your marketing materials.
0: Anyhow. Okay. You're this this is painful, dude. That's I
1: <laughs> you yeah, you need to get me off this track. <laughs> so many places we so we've admittedly. The last step attribution. So the last very thing that worked where somebody clicked on and then made a gift. That's not the only thing. And you have to be aware of that. And you have to do other things that still will. You have a saying, right, Mike? It's not the last beer. It's all beers. Or I don't know. Or did I say that? I don't know.
0: It's It's not not, the last beer that got you drunk. It's all the beers I got you drunk. There's a funny backstory behind that, in that both you and I had a LinkedIn post about that. Do you remember that? Oh, really? Oh, Uh, anyways, we'll we'll get in. It's it's neither of our quotes. It's somebody else's quote. Nobody really knows whose quote it is, but
1: thank you, the beer meme generator.
0: Yeah, but the first time we connected was both of us posting that same thing on the same day, and then DMing each other, and it was like, oh man, how do we both think of this? Do you remember this? This was way, way back. Vaguely. Vaguely. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's, it's hazy. But anyhow, track, yeah. just track it. You want to know if an email is actually sending, is actually producing gifts. I would say a very important use case for this is if you want to do some A B testing, you need to know if one email produced more gifts than the other, even if like the click rate was higher or lower. So mm-hmm. fewer people click through, but then more of them made a gift. That's what matters, right? This is like the whole conversation about whether we should add that little box that lets people pay fees, the credit card fees for the gift. The only studies that I've seen that tracked conversion seem to show that it lowers conversion. So you're getting less gifts or fewer gifts and fewer money overall. And for me, that's the deal breaker, right? Everything else really seems like an argument from either the tech provider, the giving form provider, or somebody else. Yep. anyhow, implement conversion tracking it it has there's caveats but it's still helpful and kind of indispensable.
0: All right. work to pre-populate gift forms are we talking online here? Yeah, somebody online. But somebody. obviously mail too, right? Yeah. And it's like it's it's giving amounts that are in line with their giving history?
1: Ideally yes, but at a minimum put people's names, put the information that you know about them already. I think lots of people know that this can be done with mail. Fewer people know that this can be done online mm-hmm. and it's effective. It
0: increases the number
1: of gifts. Again, think of it from a donor perspective. It's a service to the donor. You're making their life easier.
0: Yeah. Cleaning up your database. I think we can skip over that. And we Not that it's unimportant, but I think people know, yeah, garbage in, garbage out. You know, use people's
1: right name, you know, just the basic stuff, honestly. Yeah.
0: Retargeting by installing the pixels on your website. Meta has a pixel, LinkedIn has a pixel, Google has one. They they all have one. Yeah, TikTok, Twitter. Yep. Me. If this is like over your head, that's okay. Just hire a nerd on Upwork or go to your IT department, and it'll take them a few minutes to implement. Basically, it allows your Meta account, your Google account, your LinkedIn account to start to learn who visits your website and. If you ever want to retarget them, again, I hate the word targeting somebody, but for the sake of this conversation, that's how you would do it.
1: Yeah. And I know it sounds like science fiction, but it's really a really kind of basic thing that you can do in digital fundraising. And it's, I think, Mike, I don't know if you agreed, the most effective, like dollar for dollar thing you can do. So
0: Yeah, if you're getting into ad spend online, that's, I think, where both Lewis and I would start, which is with the people who are already interacting with your stuff.
1: Yeah, so lots of people get started with it. And then somebody in marketing just starts to put like boosting posts. And that just doesn't work. I mean, it's very hard to make it work. This actually works. So,
0: all right. So, we just got into some of the things that are in Lewis's new playbook for our higher ed fundraising. Maybe the same playbook that somebody invented at your shop 20 to 30 years ago. Maybe that needs to change. If what you heard here tracks with you, I don't know. I would get in touch with Lewis. He's got a thing called the annual fund toolkit. He implements a lot of this stuff for you, with you. You can find Lewis on LinkedIn, Lewis Diaz. You can also find the Donor Participation Project. And you can go to annualfundtoolkit.com if you want to learn a little bit more about that. Thank you for spending a bit of time today with us, hanging out in the Donor Growth Podcast. We will see you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to the Donor Growth Podcast, brought to you by the Donor Participation Project and buildgood.com.
0: If you found today's episode helpful, please help us by sharing it with a friend, posting about it on LinkedIn, or giving it a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, remember that
1: donor growth is possible.